Hey guys, joining me today is Greg Long, overcoming personal obstacles in life and challenging himself to be a better person. Greg became a premier home builder in Birmingham, Michigan. And then, after building a multi-million dollar company in 13 years, he decided to close his business to pursue his authentic dreams. Now Greg is a lead instructor for Reaching Higher Inc., a youth leadership course where he provides a place for potentially high-risk students to communicate freely and discover their highest potential. For the last five years, Greg has also been a dedicated executive consultant and life coach, empowering individuals and companies to operate and design an environment that provides the freedom to create a powerful future. Greg, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Kalen. Thank you. It's great to have you. I'm looking forward to talk about the way our stories define us and how to overcome our limiting beliefs. But before we do, please take a minute to fill in the gaps from that intro and tell us more about who Greg Long is. Well, thanks, Kalen. Since, you know, I started the coaching business five years ago, I think I've discovered, you know, my commitment to people. And it's not something that's new. It's something that's always been there. And it's almost like I've been led to do what I do today. You know, not like I had this defining moment that said I'm supposed to be out there coaching people or being an executive consultant or any of that. It's like I've been led to this moment. And I really live my life like that. So I'm married. I have two kids. I just found out last week I'm a grandfather. And it's amazing because I feel like, you know, today my life's just beginning. Congratulations for the newborn in the family. Yeah, thank you. It's so exciting. Just thrilled to death. But things weren't looking as bright as they are today, Greg. And I was wondering if you would be kind enough to share some of the things, some of the struggles that you went through to be where you are today. Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons I'm working with teens and I'm so interested in that is because I got present to the things that happened to me along the way as a young person weren't really the things that impacted my life. It was more based on the decisions I made about what happened and the decisions I made about what happened as a fourth grader and a fifth grader really limit what's possible for the rest of my life. So I'll give you the 10 minute version since I think we have time. But, you know, in fifth grade, I thought things were pretty normal. I had an older brother, two younger brothers. I had two parents. You know, I lived in a nice neighborhood. And then in the elementary school that I went to, I don't know about everybody that's listening out there, but there's a room at the end of the hall where they had the special kids. You know, there was only only six or seven kids. They were different. There was something about them we didn't know, but we labeled them as the dummies in the school because we had to label them something because they were different. And that's just what fifth graders do. Yeah, because fifth graders are usually very nice, especially to each other. Exactly. Exactly. They're just very inspiring and nice to other kids, right? And then, you know, that summer I went home and, you know, things were normal. And I came back to school that year in sixth grade and I was in that class. I remember it like it happened yesterday. It was Mrs. Craig's class. Now, being in Mrs. Craig's class, you know, wasn't devastating or anything. It's the decision that I made about being in that class that set me out on my life journey. Because I decided in that moment, there's something wrong with me and I'm different. And that was the future that I started to live into. I started to live that life like I knew there was something wrong with me. And, you know, the only thing that made that feeling go away was drugs and alcohol. And I started to get involved in drugs and alcohol at 12 years old. 
So what happened was that story disappeared. I didn't feel different when I did drugs and alcohol. You managed to numb yourself. Yeah, you know, and even I could make up things. So it was that decision. It wasn't the action, the thing that happened, you know, being put in Mrs. Craig's class. It was the decision that I made about it that impacted my life. And then, of course, we continue to do that all throughout our life. So, you know, in seventh grade, I was held back. Now I'm in the same grade as my little brother. Devastating. So I made more evidence that what I decided a year prior to that was the truth. So that, you know, like I said, I continued with the drugs and alcohol, you know, and then I went into the military at 17 thinking that I was going to repair myself. But my story that I created followed me everywhere. So now I'm in the military and I'm thinking that I'm going to get my life on track and things will get straightened out. But I slowly gravitated back towards the people that didn't seem to know I was different. And those were the ones involved in drugs and alcohol. And it didn't take long. You know, I was put in, uh, well, right out of seventh grade after starting off with the drugs and alcohol, I was put in a boy's home. I was removed because my whole goal in life was to find drugs and alcohol. And as a seventh grader, that didn't go over very big. So my parents removed me from the school and put me in a boy's home at the time to protect myself. And then down the road, I went into the military and took a short time in the military and I got involved with the drugs and alcohol again. It was just a continuation of the same. And pretty soon I was 17, stationed in Nuremberg, Germany. I was a heroin addict. So again, more evidence that there's something wrong with me. So the military gave me an undesirable discharge, put me on a plane and sent me back to the States. And now I'm standing in Dover, Delaware, 19 years old, having all these things that happened along the way confirm that the decision I made about myself in fifth grade was true. Well, I, I couldn't go home because now this is really cemented. I am a failure and there's something wrong with me. So it's about the coherence that we give to our stories. And if we end up believing that nuance, that coherence, that can change everything for the better or for the worse. Is that correct? Absolutely. Either we're driven to become not that or we surrender to it. So a lot of people have these great careers that they don't even like, but they're driven to prove that they're not their story. Exactly. When I first heard your story, I was struck about all the struggles that you had as a young boy and a teenager. I can imagine how difficult this must have been for you, especially from an emotional point of view. When you returned to the States, did you have any help? You were 19 at that point. You were living in Delaware. Did you have any help? Did you have any, I don't know, positive models surrounding you? What? No, at that point, I think I was in the height of my addictions and I was sure that I was different and something's wrong. So the only place left for me to go was the streets. I lived on the streets on and off for the next six years, up and down the East Coast, taking on odd jobs where I could to survive, sleeping under underpasses. I was one of those people, you know, on the corner when you drive by and see somebody sitting on the... I was one of those guys. You know, I'd pretty much given up on having the life that the rest of my brothers had at home and my family had, I was different and I was an outcast. I, I surrendered to it completely. So were you outcast by your family? I know that they have sent you to a boy's home earlier, a few years before, but did they uh, keep in touch with you during these years? Or I don't know, maybe they refused communication with you. How were the relationships? 
The relationships with them were always good. They always wanted me to do something better with my life, but I stayed distant from them after that. You know, I would call every now and then, but I remember it was usually for money or something. It wasn't for a relationship, and they were always answering. They would always do something, or, you know, they asked me to come home. But at that time, after the stint in the military and failing at that, and then living on the streets, I didn't think I deserved to have a home. So again, it has to do with our coherence and beliefs that we create to make sense of the things that are happening to us. It's completely, and I start to, looking back now, I can start to see that I kept putting myself in situations where I would fail to confirm the story I had about me. It's very interesting. So what you are saying is that at least at an unconscious level, we tend to put ourselves out there just to confirm our beliefs about our own life, actually. That's completely right. You know, it's not definitely we don't do it consciously. But someone who says that they're not good in relationships is going to continue to get in relationships and fail because they have to keep their story in place. They don't, and they're not being responsible. They're so powerful, they can actually cause that failure, no matter if the other person loves them or not. Unless they distinguish that the story they wrote, that they're the author, that they wrote it, those are decisions they made, not the truth, then they can start to write something else. But if I keep in place being a victim of the story that I authored, I stand no chance. Absolutely. If we choose to be the victim. But Greg, what was your turning point? What was your aha moment? That precise moment, if you can recall it, when you said enough is enough, I want something different with my life. Well, you know, I had to go through a few things first. You know, at 29, I ended up on my parents' doorstep, too sick to work, too sick to do anything else, and I asked for help. Of course, they'd been waiting for me to come and ask for help. You know, they wanted me to come home. And um, I was put in a hospital at that time at 29. I had six weeks at the hospital where I finally, for the first time in my life, was off of drugs and alcohol. You know, started to see the world a little more clearly. Well, I was just amazed at everything because I'd never had the fog lifted like that. I got in a relationship real quick. I did all the things they told me not to do. You know, I got married. I bought a house. I had a baby. I was working on a carpentry crew, thinking I was heading in the right direction. But I hadn't really dealt with the core story yet. So all I did is remove the alcohol and drugs. The story that I made up along the way was still present. It's still who I was. So your need for alcohol or drugs, your need to numb yourself was only a effect. You haven't dealt with the cause up until that point. Exactly. Exactly. And so in a short time, I sabotaged my relationship with my wife because she was the problem, not me. And it was another access to keeping my story in place. So after four years, I walked out on a relationship as the human being keeping a story in place. But, you know, I noticed when I walked out and got divorced over the next four years, I got in several different relationships. And ultimately what happened over the next four years is in a short time, Whoever I was with became the person I had divorced. Again, they were the problem, not me. Do you recall the main issues that you had in your relationships, in your romantic relationships, the things that you would fight about with your partners? Absolutely. Somewhere along the way, being as brilliant as I am, <laughs> I decided that it was somebody else's responsibility to make me happy. You know, it wasn't my job to make me happy. It was somebody else's. So what turned up ultimately is people got wore out and tired in my presence. 
So I did that for four years. And I remember the moment that, like you said, the moment, the breakthrough, the clarity, the moment I was sitting in my rented house, you know, as a handyman on a crew at a small little handyman company, divorced, had just finished with the fourth relationship, still not drinking. I'd been sober five years at that point. And I had this epiphany, this moment of clarity that struck me like lightning. Maybe I have something to do with it. And then I started to back and I came to the truth that I used people and when I was done using them, I threw them away. And it was one of the most disgusting moments of my life. I really got present in that moment to how much I love people and all I did is use them for what's in it for me. And there was this turning point. There was this moment. I had met this old man during my recovery. I knew he'd be open to talk to me. And there was a rifle in the closet. And I wasn't sure which one I should do. I sat there the whole night trying to figure out whether to use the rifle and end my life or to run and go find this man and talk to him about my inauthentic way of being. And it was nine o'clock in the morning. I remember the moment when I ran to the recovery hotline in our area. I ran to this hotline at nine o'clock in the morning and there sat that old man answering the telephone for recovering people that had trouble. And I walked in the door and I owned who I was. I started to be authentic where I had been inauthentic. I started to tell the truth. I started to recognize what a jerk I had been, how impossible I must be to live with, the awful person I had become. And I wanted his help. And he looked at me and he said, you know, the fact that you even know that means you stand a chance. And that was the day my life started. I was 40 years old. I'd been sober for over five years. And I remember making a promise that I would repair all the damage that I had done, that I would repair and fix everything that I had broken and all the people I had hurt along the way. And I would make it my life's work to do that. And I showed up to pick my kids up a short time later for my visitation. And my ex-wife at the time, she answered the door. And to this day, she'll tell you, I didn't recognize the person who came to the door. She said it was somebody else. I knew something had happened to him. And so after a while, you know, I did my kids. I restored myself as a father. After a couple months, I had the nerve and it took everything I had in my body because I knew I was going to get rejected. But I asked my wife out on a date my ex-wife. And she said to this day, the only reason she said yes, because she wanted to find out what happened to me. And I took her out on a date and I honored her and I respected her and I was interested in her. And we dated for a little while, about four months. And then I asked her to move in with me and we could start over again. And she said something was going on. She didn't know why, but she said yes. And I said, listen, if you're mad, please say everything you need to say along the way. You know, until you're not mad any longer. And we lived together for a short while. And I remember standing in the kitchen with her screaming at me about something. And, you know, could have been anything, a dirty dish in the sink. And she stopped in the moment. She stopped right in the middle of her argument and fight. And she go, looked at me and she goes, you know something? I'm all done blaming you. I forgive you for everything. And I got on my knee and I asked her to marry me that moment. And we got remarried 18 years ago. Such an incredible journey, Greg, such an incredible journey of recovery, actually. And this just goes to show that true transformation is possible and it is possible to obtain the forgiveness of our loved ones. For anyone out there who is listening and has limiting beliefs that prevents him or her to reach out to people, to take that first step towards change, 
believing that this will never come true. I think your story is incredibly inspiring and goes to show that most cases, our own internal blocks prevent us to create the change that we so much desire. Absolutely. I know today that I'm capable of repairing any damage that I cause anywhere, anytime. I can never let myself off the hook again for walking away. That is a powerful place to come from when we show up because we are not perfect. And this change that I'm talking about doesn't mean that starting today or starting tomorrow, I will be perfect. I will do no harm. Obviously, this will not happen, but it's about being able to understand my mistakes, being able to take responsibility for them, being able to forgive myself and forgive others and also to reach out. Because even then, at that major turning point in your life, that night when you had to make the decision reach for the rifle or reach for the telephone and speak to that person that you already knew previously from my point of view you had to make a decision then and there if you were to change your life you knew that you needed help and needed to reach out to someone and that is very important that's extremely important to forgive yourself enough to believe that you deserve someone else's attention or love or help i think that's the most powerful transformation that we can go through well, you hit that you right on the head. That was perfect. That was the moment that I became responsible. I started to say in that moment how it was going to go instead of running with the rifle in the closet. And I am clear today that I can do that anywhere, you know, and I'm not perfect by any means, but it doesn't take me three days to apologize to my wife anymore. It takes three minutes. I hear you. <laughs> I'm married as well. <laughs> Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's a journey, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes. And uh, Greg, now I can imagine why you're saying that your entire life has led you to that moment when you've decided that you want to help others as a coach, as a person who inspires young people and all that. But please tell me, how did this transition actually happen in your life? Was it intentional? Was it something that you wanted to do? Did it come, I don't know, by opportunity, by chance? How did this happen? You know, once I started to uh, clean it up with my wife, I got remarried. I sat in this space called, boy, I've got a lot of stuff to make up. So I took on being a builder, you know, because I was a handyman. And all this handyman company turned into, I'm building houses. And then all of a sudden, this building houses turned into a multi-million dollar building company. You know, and it just, my life started to work. But I found myself being unhappy again in the same situation, that feeling. Now, I could blame my wife again for that. Greg, sorry, I just want to slow you down for a minute because I think it's very important. You managed to build a multi-million dollar company. Is that correct? Yeah, I did that in about eight and a half years. Incredible. So you are the guy who was labeled as not being so smart early on in life. But you are the boy in the room at the end of that corridor, right? Mm -hmm. So this goes to show again what limiting beliefs are actually worth. And exactly as you said, they are not the same as the truth. Exactly right. And once I started, once I repaired the damage in my relationships and there were people around me, all of a sudden I knew myself to be someone who could do anything. But it took the action of cleaning up the past. And when I cleaned up the past, I was standing in the place of nothing where I could create that I'm a powerful, dedicated human being who can accomplish anything. I had to talk to myself on a daily basis and remind myself who I am in the world. And in a short time, over the eight and a half years, 
years, I went from minimum wage as a carpenter to we did about $18 million in business. And I want you to know, Kaylin, that I quit school in seventh grade. So when I started the building company, I had a seventh grade education. I went back to school to get my high school diploma, and it was only to tell my kids to stay in school. It wasn't because I thought I needed it, you know, because, listen, I'm not putting education in a different place, but a perfect example of who am I being in the world instead of what do I know? There's a distinct difference. So it, it, that was awesome. And then I closed the doors in 2008. The company went bankrupt because, you know, I'd like to blame the economy. But again, if I really want to be truthful, it was probably the seventh grade education that couldn't manage that big of a company. And it was fine because I really wasn't happy. And then I sitting in this space going, now what? And I said, well, I love people. I'm madly in love with people. I'd been mentoring this program called Reaching Higher. I said, why not become a facilitator and a teacher? Why not make a difference? And then I decided that was the pathway to go. And it took a little while to get really on the right thing as a coach. You know, I had a hard time letting go of the identity called builder, you know, because the builder was my identity at that point. It'd been that for so long. So I had a hard time letting go of that and allowing myself to be a life coach. Like, that's it. And once I declared and let go, of, I'm a builder and became a life coach. The life coach exploded the same way as the builder did. The company started to expand and started to grow. Not quite as big as the building company went, but <laughs> but it, I'm very satisfied with the progress. That's truly amazing. I always said that someone who is uh, trying to make a difference in the world, especially in our industry, in our coaching industry, in personal growth industry, in the psychology and psychotherapy realm, people who actually had a difficult time early on in life, people who had to learn to adapt people who had to learn to trust other people, people who suffered and were able to come back from that. I think those are the best people to do this job because they are already familiar with the guilt, with the shame, with the secret, all these emotional difficulties that their clients are carrying around in various moments of their lives. How do you feel about this? Oh, it's so true. You know, I think I can sit with somebody even on the first meeting and I can feel a lot of times, depending on what they're there for, you know, if I'm dealing with relationships, I can feel the soul sickness. If I'm dealing with an individual that's just lost, I can feel that energy that's gone. And then I can walk into a company that just wants to grow and I can feel the excitement about growing and I can also feel the frustration about trying the same things over and over again and failing. So I mean, I think I'm finally allowed myself to become in tune with human beings. And I've discovered also inside of dealing with a lot of recovery people, I think this is just an observation over here that a lot of times people become addicted early on or use substances early on because they are so connected to the human race. They're sensitive to the impact of the human beings around them. And the only way to turn that off is by medicating it. So that's just the Greg Long version of, you know. Yeah, I completely understand. And I know where you're coming from and what you mean. That's why it's so important when, as parents, we notice that we have a really empathic child or a very emotional child. It's very important to take care of him or her and mirror the child, validate his or her emotions. And later in life, as the child grows up and becomes an adolescent or even a young adult, it's very important to ensure that he or she has the right guidance 
And for guys, it's very important to have mature men on their side, their fathers, maybe their grandfathers, their uncles, or I don't know, a mentor, a minister, a priest, a therapist, you name it. But it's very important not to do this journey alone. Absolutely. Absolutely not. For sure. Greg, you have an amazing story to tell and it's quite impressive what you have been able to achieve. And I would like to ask you to share a little bit about the work that you are doing today, about your clients, about impact that you have in the world, all the fun stuff. Well, I think my company is starting to head in the direction that I naturally would take, which I'm working with a lot of people in relationships, which is exciting. You know, I start off working with CEOs and I find out if their company's not working, usually their relationship's not working. You know, so if I tackle relationship, all of a sudden their company starts to grow. I'm really starting to see that, and based on my past with relationships, I'm starting to see that my value as a coach is all about relationships. Whether they be in a workplace, in a marriage, in a teaching position, as a teenager, relationships are the vital heartbeat of my success in the world. And if I'm not being connected or in relationships, you know, or being related to people, then I end up going back to the place where I'm not happy. And it's so important for me to make it my daily commitment to make a difference for people that really makes a difference. I can really resonate with that. Greg, please share a few of the most common challenges that you encounter when working with your clients, maybe in a couple's relationship. Well, let me see. In a couple's relationship, you know, it's really funny because I coach them separately in the beginning and then I bring them together and they're two distinctly different people. So what people I've noticed in relationships is people are phony and they're married to each other. When I get them alone, they're authentic, they're open, they're alive, you know, and then when I put them together, they're guarded and cynical and resigned. And I go, what happened to the two people I was talking to last week? That seems to be the biggest hurdle to get them over is along the way in a relationship, they spend so much time together that when they say something, the spouse responds a certain way. And then that person decides it's not safe to express myself anymore. And part of them disappears in the relationship. And when that happens four or five times or six or 10 times, what happens after an eight year marriage is they're married to two different people because the part that they loved disappeared. But they don't want to be responsible for the way I reacted to that person actually caused them to be cautious or caused them to not be fully self-expressed. My own fears actually suppressed who they are in the world. Now I don't like them. And then they start to deal with that, being responsible for the way my partner shows up in life is solely on my shoulder. Because if I accept them exactly the way they are and accept them 100%, then they can show up any way they want to show up. So that's part of what I deal with immediately in the relationships is being authentic. What happened to you? Because when they're with me alone, they're fully self-expressed. They're excited. They're having a great time. Then that person disappears. So they're cautious inside of a relationship where you're supposed to be able to be so self-expressed and fully open. So it's fun to start to dismantle that along the way and start people be at risk and start to say, no, you said this and I made up this. And then part of me disappeared. It's almost like a created filter, Kaylin, like they've created filters to listen to their spouses through so their spouses can't show up any other way except for the filter that they've created. Yeah, 
Absolutely. I think we do that more frequently than we realize. I can give you a real humorous one. I'll give you a humorous one with my wife. I used to be sitting around a table or something and my wife would give me a dirty look. Now for everybody out there listening, you know what the dirty look means, right? It means you did something wrong. You know, you said something bad. I mean, I make it mean all kinds of stuff. So she could give me this one look and my whole night would be ruined or I would start arguing with her. So at some point I realized that it was the look that set me off because she never said anything. It was just the look. So I decided to change the meaning of the look. So what I did is now every time my wife gives me the look at the dining room table, I made up that she just farted. And then I look at her and go, honey, you didn't. And so I never get upset anymore when she gives me the dirty look because I just made up. She passed gas. So she's very cautious about where she gives me the dirty look from here on out, right? So I, you know, it really has trained her if she's got something to say, to say it. Because if she gives me the look, I'm going to accuse her. <laughs> For sure. It's a, it's a great idea. I have to experiment with that myself. <laughs> okay. That's exactly right. Well, listen, where else, if you take a look in your life out there, where do you get off track or where does your purpose or your commitment in life get derailed all by somebody's comment or their look, you know, or the meaning automatically you make it mean something, you know, you get off track trying to figure out what that really meant instead of adding a positive meaning to it. Uh, Greg, most men that reach out to me are struggling, trying to recover from a painful breakup or divorce. What would your advice be to them? Well, as quick as you can. I know this isn't easy. You know, it's, it's probably the hardest thing I ever did is I have to be responsible for causing the breakup or causing the relationship to go the way it did. Because once I start to deal with myself, I'm empowered. If I start to look for the circumstances that caused it, it's a loss of power because I'll never find the right circumstance. I'm absolutely positive today that if I came home and my wife was sleeping with the neighbor, I would have to take a look at directly who am I being as a husband that she has to go over there to find something. I have to deal with myself, not with her. And that's a hard place to get. But if you can get there, I tell you, there'll be some freedom. Great advice. Great advice. I completely agree, Greg. (laughs) Okay, Greg, as we are reaching the final part of the show, I would like to ask you a few more questions that will give the audience invaluable pieces of wisdom to help them on their journey. So are you ready for the fire round? Absolutely. All right. Here's the first question. If you were to recommend one book that every man must read, what would it be and why? I'd say it's The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and John David Mann. You know, it's the simplest book I've ever read, 170 pages, and it gives you the five laws, spherical laws of success. And they're so simple to follow, yet they hit every area of life. It was the most unforgettable book I ever read. Okay, there's one for my reading list. I haven't read this one yet. All right, thank you. Here's the second question. If you had the opportunity to talk to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give him? What would you tell him to do differently? You know, one of the big things is that, you know, I would tell him differently is self-talk matters. So be careful. And then hang with people that believe in you. If you take those two things, if you watch the stuff you tell yourself on a daily basis and you only hang around with people that have your winning, your best interest in mind, you can't miss. 
That's so powerful. <laughs> I like it. Greg, may I ask you to share a piece of advice that your father never got to tell you, or maybe he didn't know about being a man in today's world? And talking about information or advice that would have changed everything in your adult life, one that you will be sure to share with the future generation. Well, the biggest thing I think is choose powerfully and honor your word. After all, your word's the only thing you have. You know, it doesn't matter how much stuff you have, but if you honor your word, no one can take that away from you. And I, you know, it doesn't mean you're always going to keep it, but I meant respect it and honor it. So when you give it, deal with yourself. And there's a lot of times you won't be able to keep it because you're busy people, but honoring it would mean you're going to call and make sure the person or where you gave your word know that you can't keep it. It's just given me so much power in my life to deal with the relationship that I have with my word. And it, when it, something doesn't fail, it's because I didn't honor my word. If something is successful, it's because I managed to deal with myself and honor my word. So that would be the piece of advice to take with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Greg, this has been great. It's such a great episode. I know the audience will love it. Before we say goodbye, please tell us about the projects that currently excite you and where can people get in touch with you? Oh, awesome. Thank you. Well, I have a website, gregorylong.net, that you can actually send me a note. I haven't done any programs or I don't have any podcast or anything for you to listen to at this point. But I am developing my first relationship seminar that will be done before the end of this year to work with couples in person over the weekend. And I'm really excited about that. You know, my coaching business has expanded to enough where I have only so many time for so many one-on-one -on -one clients. But now to get out and start to work with people in groups is just a whole new adventure. And I'm really looking forward to it. That's amazing, Greg. Congratulations for that. I'm looking forward for your program to come out and I will be sure to put the link to your website in the show notes. Thank you again for joining us today and I hope to have you again on the Mesh Journey Today podcast in the future. Look forward to it, Kaylin. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure. Guys, till next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.